I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 1. It's where we're going to begin in just a few minutes. If you don't own a Bible or don't have one with you, there should be one in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, feel free to take that, and then that is our gift to you, that you are free to take that with you this morning. But Daniel, chapter 1, is where we're going to be in just a few minutes. Uh, I imagine when I say the book of Daniel that many of you, like me, your mind goes to stories that you were brought up on or that you've heard most of your life. Uh, maybe those stories involve a fellow in a lion's den. Maybe those stories involved uh, some boys walking through the fiery furnace. Whatever comes to your mind when you hear the story or the book of Daniel this morning, one of the reasons that we as a church are walking through this series called The Story in 2015 this year is so that we as believers, we don't know just a few loosely uh, fitted stories on a string. We, we, we know this, but we don't really know what it has to do with that, or we've heard a little bit about this story. What's the, what's the whole story of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation? How does it all fit in together? And even more importantly than that, our desire is that you, we know the God of the Bible, the whole Bible. And this morning, we come to, to personally, I've just got to tell you, one of my favorite books in the Bible. You say, Pastor Mike, you say that every time. Well, I really mean it this time. The book of Daniel is just one of my favorite books anywhere in Scripture. Uh, many theologians will tell you that the book of Daniel might be the most significant book in the Old Testament. Now, that's, that's hard to say that, but all that's there. But the book of Daniel is incredible truth for us about some events that took place somewhere around 2,600 years ago. Now, the book of Daniel, let me give you a little bit of context, and I trust and hope that many of you were able to be reading through Daniel this past week as part of our reading plan. If you're not, if you haven't, Daniel is a great place to start or even get caught up and start reading in Daniel. But Daniel is an incredible book because it's an incredible history book. Now, Scripture was not written, the Bible was not written to be a history book. But where the Bible deals with history, it is proven without exception to be exactly true in history. The Bible sets itself in a real time, in a real place, in a real kingdom, here specifically, the kingdom of Babylon. A real king. History verifies it. King Nebuchadnezzar. We follow through the events of the rise of a kingdom, the fall of a kingdom, the rise of kings, the fall of kings, and there's God's Word walking us through all of that. book of Daniel is incredible because it's an incredible book of prophecy. If you've read Daniel 7 through 12, you know there's some incredible visions and incredible images and pictures in there. Some of them you read and you go, I have absolutely no idea what all that means. You don't read them in isolation, you read them in the whole of Scripture. But the book of Daniel is also written to be prophetic. It's the revelation of the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Daniel gives you, this is amazing, no other book in the world can make this claim like Scripture. It gives you the panorama of all of history. It walks us through the rise of the Babylonian Empire, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. Incredible prophecies of what's about to come and going to come. That one day Messiah is going to come. One day the kingdom is going to be set up forever and ever and ever. And all that through the lenses of history inspired by God here in the book of Daniel. Incredible book. Jesus referred to Daniel as the prophet. When Jesus is laying out his program for 
history, in Matthew chapter 24, there is only one Old Testament prophet that Jesus quotes. It's the prophet Daniel. The prophecies of Daniel are amazing. And we, we could go that direction this morning, but we're going to go a little bit different route because not only is Daniel incredibly historically accurate, not only is it amazing prophecies, the book of Daniel is painfully practical for you and me here today. You say, how, how do you mean? What, what does that mean? Let me ask you, have you as a follower of Christ ever felt a little bit out of step with the world around you? <laughs> have you ever felt like that the way you see life and the way you see the world and the way you want to raise your family, according to the Scripture, just doesn't line up with the world around you? Have you ever felt that way? And have you ever sensed that you're, you're maybe in a world that the world and its ways of looking at things and seeing things from marriage to family to finances, whatever, is trying to conform you into this mold so that you see things from the world's perspective instead of God's Word and the perspective of God's Word? Do you ever sense like you are trying to live godly in a godless culture? Anybody relate to that? Daniel. Daniel. See, Daniel, as the book of Daniel begins, is a 17-year-old young man. He has been taken from his home in Judah. He has been exiled by the king Nebuchadnezzar. He has been taken with a few friends, and he's now been placed in a nation that's not his home. <laughs> He's an exile living in a foreign world. And the world he's been placed in is trying to turn him into a Babylonian. Trying to make him think like a Babylonian, act like a Babylonian, trying to have a Babylonian name, but through Babylonian education. He is literally being pressed into the mold of the world around him. That's what's going on in the book of Daniel. You say, well, how... How wicked was the world he found himself in? I mean, we're living in some pretty tough times here in, you know, God-blessed America. What was it like in Babylon? Well, even the Bible, in Revelation chapter 18, when it's referring to the end of time and the personification of evil itself, calls it Babylon the Great. Meaning, even at the end of human history, the Bible represents, personifies evil itself as Babylon. Babylon is one of the worst places that has ever been known as far as morality. It was a wicked place that Daniel and his friends were boop, dropped right down in the middle of. They had a wicked king. We read about Nebuchadnezzar, but we know from history in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar was known for his extreme cruelty. He was an egomaniac. He was a murderous, wicked man. We know that the nation of Babylon had a godless, satanic-inspired, state-run religion. Daniel refers to, later in the book, the demons that are controlling what's going on in Babylon. It's satanic. There's a godless educational system. Daniel and his friends are going to be put through a three-year educational program. You say, well, I can relate to that. I don't even trust our schools. I'm not even going to get into that debate. But let me tell you how bad it was in Babylon. It included training and certification as an enchanter, a magician, and an expert in the dark practices of the occult. That's what you had to go through if you were educated in Babylon. 
And it was an extremely hostile spiritual environment. <laughs> you don't worship like the Babylonians worship it. You end up being thrown into a fiery furnace. A wicked place. So here's what we can draw from Daniel. And here's the, here's the course we're going to take this morning. What does it look like or how do the godly live in a godless culture? That's pretty practical, wouldn't you say? Daniel helps us with that. Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading there. I'm not going to even come close to trying to cover the 12 chapters. We're going to focus on chapter 1 and draw out four principles for our life as we as believers living in a godless culture. Can you live godly in a godless culture? And I'll say this, Daniel doesn't only survive in the godless culture, Daniel thrives and has incredible influence and impact for the kingdom of God. What did it look like in his life? Chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read a few of these things quickly because it's background. Verse 1. In the third year of the, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's talking about the siege. Three different series of deportations. Daniel and his friends were taken out of Jerusalem in the first one. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, others, and taken to Babylon. Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Everything we've been reading about in the Judah being besieged and Jerusalem being besieged was at the decree of God. Didn't catch God off guard. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. Shinar is another word for Babylon. To the house of his God, he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God, the Babylonian God, verse 3. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Verse 4, youths, somewhere between 14 and 17 years of age, youths in whom there was no defect, whom were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discernment, and knowledge, who had the ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He said, we're going to educate you so you think like a Babylonian. Verse 5. The king appointed them a daily ration of the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the the end of which they would enter the king's personal service. They go through a three-year training program. And at the end, they're going to stand in the king's court and serve alongside King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 6, now among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Say, I've never heard of those dudes. That's because this is their Hebrew name. You know them by their Babylonian name. Verse 7, then the command of the officials assigned them new names. Daniel, Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it doesn't take a genius to read this or hear this and realize that there's a strategy that's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar was a smart man. Nebuchadnezzar had thousands of more Judeans, Israelites, Jews, if you will, coming into Babylon. And he knew for them to be profitable to the nation of Babylon, they were going to have to be influenced. 
So he said, here's what we'll do. We'll take some of the key influencers and we'll pull them in and we'll teach them to think Babylonian. We'll give them a Babylonian name. They'll take on the lifestyle of the Babylonians. And then guys like Daniel will be able to influence his fellow Jews so that they become Babylonian and they profit Babylon. It was a strategy. There was an intentional effort to conform Daniel and his people into the mold of the world. Paul says, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed, pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's, here's conforming that's going on. Daniel and his friends are trying, they're trying to press them into the mold. Now, Daniel thrives. By the end of the book of Daniel, you have seen Daniel influence not one king, not two kings, three kings. Two of those kings, by the end of their life, are praising the God of heaven, the God of Daniel. So Daniel doesn't only just endure in the culture, he is an extreme influence for the kingdom. How did you do it, Daniel? What did it look like? How do the godly live in a godless culture? I'm going to share with you four words very quickly this morning. Principle number one is this, expectation. Daniel had a realistic expectation. You can write these things down. I'm going to give you four words. That's the first one, expectation. What do you mean? Well, Daniel... The book of Daniel is not the exception, it's the norm. Meaning, God's people in a fallen world have always and always will be in the minority. God's people in a fallen world will always feel like, seem like, we are the ones who are being pressed into the mold. That's why the Bible's written as it is, and Paul said, do not be conformed to the world because it's happening whether you feel it or know it. The God of this world is aggressively attempting to silence, destroy, and completely remove the glory of God as it's seen through His people. That's the world we live in. Therefore, Daniel expected opposition. Daniel expected this pressure. Daniel expected what he faced because, this is huge for you and me, Daniel knew he was an exile in a foreign land. You hear that? He knew Babylon was not his home. He didn't put hope in a revitalized Babylon. He didn't put hope in the next election of the king. He put hope. He lived as an exile. He lived as a foreigner in a foreign land because his ultimate was hope was in the king that was going to come one day and establish the only permanent kingdom in all of history, the kingdom of God. So for him to be out of step and for him to experience the things he experienced, you don't see Daniel ever wringing his hands. You don't see Daniel falling apart. You don't see Daniel saying, what's wrong with this culture? It was Babylon. He expected Babylon to act like Babylon. And God had taken these godly people and dropped them, boop, right down in the middle of Babylon. Can anybody relate to that? That's where you and I live. Listen, I encourage you to read the first chapter of Babylon. There are some things Daniel endured that Daniel had every reason and every, every right, quote-unquote, to be extremely bitter, to be extremely fearful, and, and just to be hostile against those around him. Read some of the things Daniel had to endure 
in Babylon. But what you don't see in Daniel is this bitter opposition in the sense of militant. What you see in Daniel is this idea. He knew he was an exile in a foreign land and he knew it wasn't his home. He knew and understood like Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter was writing to New Testament believers living under the Roman Empire, who by the way, under emperors like Caligula and Nero, it wasn't easy for believers in that day either. You need to understand, whatever the United States has experienced over the last 200 years has historically been the exception. You know that. So the fact that it is becoming much more difficult for you and I to name the name of Jesus and the expectation that it will cost us something in weeks and months and years to come, that's the norm when you read the whole of Scripture. And it's our job as believers to encourage one another and sharpen one another within in that. That's why community is so important that you are gathering in community and we gather like this, that you come in from the fire, so to speak, and are encouraged and then you're sent back out into the fire to live on mission. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through. Don't be surprised. It's not your home. You feel out of step, you are out of step. You feel like the way you see the world is not the way the world... You see it through kingdom eyes. As if something strange were happening to you, Peter says. Next verse. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it's revealed to all the world. You're partnering with Christ, enduring the exact same thing Christ went through, and it will get worse. And you need to know that. Daniel is an example of what that looks like. So Daniel had expectation. He wasn't surprised when he was treated as an outsider in a sense. He wasn't surprised when he felt the pressure of living godly in a godless world. Second word. How did the godly live in a godless culture? Second thing we see from Daniel is this word, the word conviction. Now what does that mean? Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says this. They tried to get Daniel to go through their educational system. They changed Daniel's name. All the pressures were being placed on Daniel. Verse 8, just a powerful verse says, But Daniel, 17-year-old young man, says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. The word resolved means to make up one's mind ahead of time, to determine beforehand, to put or set something in place. Daniel had the word of God so poured into his mind and his thinking and his heart, he determined there's lines I will not cross no matter what pressure is placed upon me. Now, you got to see something here. You don't see Daniel drawing the line when they want him put in, when they want to put him through three years of Babylonian education. You don't even see Daniel drawing the line when they say, "We're going to change your name." You don't see anything about that. But when they say you're going to eat the king's food, you're going to eat his portions, Daniel says, I have resolved in my heart that I simply cannot do that. Why? 
Because he didn't like pork chops? Nope, that wasn't why. Because Daniel, as a young boy, and as the people of Israel were under the Mosaic Covenant, and God had said food in particular to eat this kind of food would have been for Daniel a direct compromise of God's clear word. In that Mosaic Covenant, there were certain things that were to be eaten, certain things that were not to be eaten. What the king wanted him to eat were things that were forbidden in the Mosaic Covenant. We in the New Testament are not under that Mosaic Covenant. Jesus pronounced all foods clean. The same principle is binding, though. Here it is. The lines I will draw of what I will cross and not cross are not my opinion. They're not my preference. It's got to be where God has spoken clearly. That's it. Here's what God says. Sometimes we as Christians, we run and we draw lines unnecessarily. Have your conviction. Have your preference. But don't make your preference a conviction. But where God has spoken clearly, like Daniel in this godless culture, there are some lines we'll draw and say, I'm not going to cross them. I'm not going to cross them. I mean, there's endless examples of this in this culture. I could give you so many. I'll, I'll just pick one as means of an example. If you don't know, you are living in a moral revolution today that is maybe unlike any we've seen in history. Everything involved with marriage and morality and sexuality and gender is being twisted and distorted and turned upside down. You know that. You know that. What do we do? Where do we draw the line? I'm a parent of five kids. I grieve for my children and what they're constantly assaulted by and what they're constantly inundated by. Do I draw the line at my preference, at what makes me uncomfortable? That's not the line we draw. Here's the line we draw. What does God have to say? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Sometimes the Word of God is unclear. I just, if I knew what God's will was, hmm, let's see. For this is the will of God. How about that? Your sanctification. That as a child of God, a man and a woman who walks with the Lord Jesus, a student, a boy or a girl, as we know Christ and walk with Christ, our lives are different and that we pursue a holy life. Sanctification. Set apart. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That is so archaic. Pastor Mike, you must be living in... Leave it to Beaver World. What are you talking about? By the way, I've never seen Leave it to Beaver. I don't even know what it is. It was just the first thing that came to my mind. It's a TV show. I guess. This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. God has given the gift of marriage and within marriage the joy of intimacy and sexual intimacy. But outside of that is off limits because God loves you and has a plan and he wants the world to see something different. And within that is God's best. Outside is pain and misery. No matter what the world says. He goes on and he says, that each of you would know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, like the Babylonians, like the Americans, fill it in, who do not know God. If you think you feel out of step when it comes to the moral revolution, you are. And God's word is radically different. And God's plan is radically better. 
for you and your children. Hebrews 13, you can just write this down, give honor to marriage. That's just one area that we draw the line, if you will, as believers, because it's where God draws the line, not because we're not a preference. Not, it's an issue of, here's what God says. Daniel was a 17-year-old exile living in a foreign land. As far as we know, he didn't have any parents around. As far as we know, he didn't have a church accountability group. But here was a young man who takes a stand where God had spoken clearly. He's a man of conviction. He lives in a godless world with conviction. So he had expectation. He had conviction. Third word. And these two go together because this is the balancing tension for us as believers. Number three, how do the godly live in a godless culture? Number three, humility. What does that mean? We'll read the rest of the verse. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food and with the wine which he drank. So, he goes to the commander and says, to heck with you, commander, don't you know I'm a Christian and I'll do whatever I want. That's not what he says. Verse 8, Daniel, with great wisdom in humility, the Bible says he'd made up his mind he was not going to compromise, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Daniel's not being soft. Daniel's experiencing and demonstrating humility here because here's what Daniel knows. Watch this. That if Daniel draws a line Without humility, Daniel is removed from any position of influence in Babylon. And he honors the one who's in authority. He's wicked. Of course he's wicked. He's in Babylon. But Daniel practices 1 Peter 5 and says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Daniel humbles himself under the man that's in control. Watch this. This is huge for you and me because he knew who was in control of the people who were in control. He says, God, all authorities from you I can draw a line and I can be a real jerk about it and I can get thrown in the fiery furnace and sometimes that's the case. But in this case, he's going to say with humility, is there, he, he says, so he sought permission from the commanders of the officials that he might not defile himself. You say, how do you know that's what's going on here? How did God respond? James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See what happens, verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor, grace, and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God is at work in the life of the commander of the officials to allow Daniel to keep his position and keep his influence in Babylon. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid that my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink... For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the used to your own age? That, they, that would cause me to forfeit my own head. In other words, Daniel says, would you give me permission to not defile myself with the king's food? Let's come up with another plan. The guy says, hey, Daniel, I like you. You've earned favor. You've shown me respect. But if you look haggard and you look like you've been on the Atkins diet when the king comes here, then he's going to have my head. 
So Daniel comes up with great wisdom. Watch this. Wisdom. Winsomeness in dealing with the culture around him. He says, verse 12, Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with us based on what you see. Translation. Hey, I got a plan. Give us vegetables and water for 10 days and see how we look. See if we don't look more healthy and robust, if you will. That's a good word. Healthy than the other guys. And you know what happens. They do that for 10 days. The commander says, that's a great idea. Daniel practices humility and wisdom. Did Daniel compromise at all? Not one single bit. He created space for God to work. God changed the commander's heart. And Daniel stayed in a position of influence. And, verse 14, he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. God moved in and showed favor. Now, don't run out of here and say, well, I better find that vegetable and water diet plan because it worked for them. That's not the point. The point is, Daniel humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and God moved in and showed favor. And Daniel remained in a place of influence. And God uses Daniel. Read the rest of the book. To literally alter the course of human history. Together, courage and humility can shake the very foundations of hell, advancing the kingdom of God in the most unlikely of places, even in Babylon. Larry Osborne, pastor. One more statement. Daniel served with humility and respect his captors and his wicked masters so well and with great loyalty that it kept him getting promoted. With every position, his influence grew greater and greater and greater, eventually leading both Nebuchadnezzar and the next king, King Darius, to proclaim Daniel's God as the one true God. Conviction? We draw the line where the Bible draws the line. But God, we want to humble ourselves with respect. We want to humble ourselves under those that you've placed in authority. We will trust you up to the point that we have to compromise God's word. We'll never compromise God's word. But Lord, when we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, we trust that you're going to show favor. That may mean that your appearance shows up better than all the other youths. It may mean that you wind up in the fiery furnace. But we're going to trust God. So Daniel, in this culture, had realistic expectations. Daniel demonstrated great courage and conviction. Thirdly, Daniel demonstrated great humility. And then fourthly and finally, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. How do you live godly in a godless culture? Fourth word, hope. Daniel had unceasing, unwavering hope. Now, one of the challenges as a communicator, and you as parents understand this, that sometimes I use a word and everyone in here hears it a certain way. (laughs) But that's not the way the Bible intends it. The word hope is one of these words. When you hear the word hope the way we use it in our culture, here's what you think. Wishful thinking, positive outlook. I really hope that Pastor Mike quits preaching pretty soon, but you don't really know what's going to happen. 
He may go on for hours. You don't know. I really hope that it, it, it rains tomorrow. I really hope my team goes to the Super Bowl. It's this hopeful expectation, but you really don't know what the future has. That is not biblical hope. When the Bible talks about the concept of hope, the hope that Daniel had, it is absolute certainty of the future rooted in the promises of God. Biblical hope leaves no hint of uncertainty. The future is certain, yet it is unrealized of what God has already said is going to come about. You say, what does that mean? I don't even understand what you're saying. Daniel had hope. Here's the point. Daniel knows how the story ends. Let me give an illustration. Last Sunday night, I, I got to do one of my favorite things. I, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. Boo, hiss. I got it. Okay, cheer, whatever. So I got to go downstairs, and I got to watch my Cowboys play, and it was late on Sunday night, but here's how I was watching them. I was watching them on DVR. You know what that means? I knew how the game was going to turn out. So I'm watching the game, and in the fourth quarter, man, if you watched it, if you're a football fan, if you're not, what's wrong with you? But anyway, if you're not a football fan, I mean, at the end of the fourth quarter, the New York Giants are driving. They're about to score to go up by two touchdowns. There's only two minutes in the game. It is hopeless that Dallas is going to win. Not for me. I'm sitting there with all confidence about what I'm watching. I'm not upset. I'm not worried. I'm not sweating. I'm not wringing my hands. Oh, the Cowboys are going to lose their home opener. What's going on? I was watching it with great hope. Not positive thinking that it might work out. Watch this. I had seen the end of the game. So the way I saw the events folding out are playing themselves out, all fit into the big picture of how I already knew how it was going to end. Daniel endures a godless culture under three godless kings in perhaps the most wicked society that's ever lived, and he thrives, and he survives, and he's used as an incredible influence. Watch this, because Daniel knows how the story ends. He knows how it ends. He knows how it ends for his people specifically because he read the book of Jeremiah and he knows that their their exile was only going to be for 70 years. So he knew they were going to be taken back to the nation of Israel. He knew how it was going to end for him personally. If you haven't read Daniel chapter 12, read chapter 12 verse 13. God says of Daniel, Daniel you continue, you endure, you go on. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into your rest, Daniel. You will rise again for your lauded portion at the end of the age. Is that awesome? We sang about that earlier. Did you know the book of Daniel mentions the resurrection at least twice in chapter 12? It says, Daniel, you press on and you endure in this godless culture. And here's your future, particularly, Daniel. You go your way to the end then you're going to enter your rest. You're going to rise again and you're going to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the age. Daniel knows the end of the story. But then Daniel also knows how it's going to end for the world. And he knows the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and all all those kingdoms are temporary. 
And they all set the stage for one permanent kingdom that's going to come, of which Daniel is going to be a citizen forever and ever and ever. And if you're here and you know Christ, Paul says in Romans 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not your home. In Daniel in chapter 7, I'm not going to take time to read it because our time is way over Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Daniel sees a vision of the Ancient of Days. He sees one come as the Son of Man who is given dominion and authority and honor forever and ever and ever and ever. And you say, who is that figure? Well, the greatest interpreter of Scripture, Jesus Christ himself, interprets it for us in Matthew 24 when he quotes Daniel of himself and says, that's me and my kingdom. There is an eternal kingdom. Listen, beloved. I encourage you to spend a little bit more time in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation than you do watching Fox News. We know how the story ends. Therefore, therefore, we know what we're going to expect. This is not our home. We can exercise great conviction. And if it means we die now or we die in the future, praise God, we know what happens to us because of Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. We will rise again in the resurrection with King Jesus. And we can exercise great humility to those who are around us, even those who are wicked in authority over us, because we know the one who controls the one who are in control. And we have hope. Not wishful thinking, absolute certainty. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you bow your head for just a moment? I trust that God is working in your heart during this time and we're going to move into a time of response as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I want to remind you, David Brewer, one of our elders, is going to come and walk you through this time in just a moment. But when Jesus gathered with His disciples in that upper room, They broke the bread and they drank the wine. He said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it in my kingdom. Even as you take the Lord's Supper this morning, it is a reminder, it is a picture. One day we're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. He is coming to make all things right. Lord, we love you. God, we praise you. Prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper in Jesus' name. Amen.